I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> True Lies. How'd it go at the convention, honey? You were the big hit of the show. It's fantastic. It's, I love the computer business. For 15 years, Harry Tasker's been leading a double life. Mr. President, one of our best men is inside. Transmitting now. Right on time. I don't believe I've met you before. Rehnquist. Harry Rehnquist. Listen to the following code word. Helen. H-E-L-E-N. Now, they're about to collide. What's your exit strategy? I'm gonna walk right out of the front gate. May I see your invitation, please? Sure. Here's my invitation. Yeah, that worked good. Right out the old front gate. Give me back a second. Mr. Tasker's office. Hi, it's Helen. Is he in? Harry's in a sales meeting, Mrs. Tasker. It's not like he's saving the world or anything. Well, see, this is the problem with terrorists. They're really inconsiderate when it comes to people's schedules. Could you press the button for the top floor, please? Hi, Helen. Harry forgot something back at the office. Whenever I can't sleep, I just ask him to tell me about his day. Six seconds and I'm out. Maybe it's just that you're not in touch with your feminist side. Harry! Uh-oh. What were you doing there? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. You know what this is. It's a snow cone maker. Is it a water heater? From James Cameron, director of Aliens and T2. Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a Soviet MIRF-6 from an SS-22N launch vehicle. I married Rambo. Jamie Lee Curtis. Have you ever killed anyone? Yeah, but they were all bad. True lies. What can I say? I'm a spy. The James Cameron season continues with this 1994 film that, like The Abyss, seems to have been largely forgotten and never released on Blu-ray. They are also both notably absent on 4K and on streaming services. That means it's hard to find in even substandard definition and almost impossible in standard HD right now, which means a lot of you won't have seen it. As with The Abyss, Cameron has claimed in recent years that he's trying to find time during his busy schedule of not making or releasing any of the five claimed Avatar sequels to supervise their remastering into not only 1080p but 4K. The Abyss was apparently being officially colour graded by Skip Kimball in early 2019 and he tweeted about that fact. Terminator 2 received an unpleasantly scrubbed greenish 4K transfer inferior to various 1080p releases, though that film is infamous among collectors for having no perfect home version. That is the 4K disc version of Terminator 2 that is out there in stores and available online right now. I do not recommend the 4K version of T2. The best, most cinematically accurate version of T2 you can get in the UK is the Optimum Home Entertainment version from 2008, the Blu-ray. The best American Blu-ray would be the Lionsgate version. But whatever you do, I would steer clear of the 4K version. I know I've, I've had friends say, I really like that 4K version. Enjoy the green, my friends. Enjoy the sickly pallor of the human's skin. 
This may have disappointed James. It may have been another contributory reason to why he's holding back on the abyss and true lies. Cameron, when questioned, claimed that he had finished HD transfers to watch and approve of, but also claimed that he just didn't have the 28 hours it would take to go back and tweak his non-masterpieces until they were just right. Since then, America has changed presidents, we've entered into an ongoing pandemic, and the future of cinema is very much shrouded in mist and up in the air. The 30th birthday of The Abyss and the 25th birthday of True Lies came and went. And now, more than two years later, with nothing but time on lockdown to focus on computer projects, somehow still neither have surfaced. Meanwhile, Piranha 2 The Spawning got a Shout Factory Blue release, and 1994's Tammy and the T-Rex is on 4K. It's also really good. The full gore cut of Tammy and the T-Rex is so much fun. We're going to do a show on it. In other words, there's not having enough time because you're too busy with exciting new projects, and then there's burying significant movies so nobody can see them. I believe this goes beyond the Disney Fox buyout, and I am currently settled on the possibility that James Cameron just plain hates The Abyss, and that True Lies troubles him. After hearing about The Abyss, you might have some idea as to the former, and when we get into True Lies, you'll have a better idea as to why the latter may also be the case. And if you're listening in the future and watching them in pristine 4K on Disney Plus as they released True Lies to coincide with there's like a True Lies series in the works helmed by McGee! Oh, splendid. If you've ever seen, was that one with Tom Hardy and uh, Chris Pine? The one where they both stalk Reese Witherspoon. Oh, um, Spies Like Us. Yeah. This means war. Hunk of shit directed by McGee. Fucking loathsome movie. So if he's in charge of the True Lies TV show, good luck, Disney. Good luck. Didn't he do Terminator 3? Yes. So The one where he's like, who wants to see Moonblood Good's boobs? Maybe don't give him Cameron projects then. Maybe don't give McGee anything, ever. He's a terrible director. He makes people angry on his sets. And he doesn't stand up for people or, or settle or de-escalate arguments. He's both incompetent and dangerous to work with. You might get headbutted. Okay. There are so many news reports of fights breaking out on the sets of McGee movies that they predispose people to expect the worst. McGee himself says that he was headbutted by Bill Murray on the set of the Charlie's Angels movie. And as you will all know, film was released on the internet, a sound footage of uh, Christian Bale going mad on the set of Terminator Salvation, screaming at the lighting cameraman for moving something around behind him. And everyone said, oh, Christian Bale's completely lost the plot. How can he be going so mad? Well. Maybe the solution lies in the fact that the production notes have the producer say Christian Bale really didn't want to uh, just do an action movie. He really wanted to know that there was something more to the movie than that. And maybe Christian Bale just suddenly woke up one day and went, hang about a minute, I'm in a movie directed by McGee. Wah! Unlike Mark Kermode, I'm not going to give Christian Bale the benefit of the doubt for this. But listen to how McGee does fucking nothing to de-escalate the situation. McGee, you have fucking something to say to this prick? I didn't see it happen. Well, somebody should be fucking watching and keeping an eye on him. Fair enough. This is the second time that he doesn't give a fuck about what is going on in front of the camera. All right? All right? I'm trying to fucking do a scene here and I'm going, why the fuck is Shane walking in there? What is he doing there? Do you understand my mind is not in the scene if you're doing that? Let's not take a fucking minute. Let's go again! And let's not have you fucking walking in! 
Yeah, you might get it. He doesn't fucking it. Get, it. I get it. You might. I get it. He does not get it. And good adjustments, okay? Seriously, man, you and me, we're fucking done professionally. Fucking ass. I wish I could say let's leave McGee behind, but Disney just gave him true lies, so fuck it. Back to true lies, the Cameron version. So if you are watching it in the future in pristine 4K on Disney+, Plus, just know I am happy that this information has dated. In the meantime, we watched this True Lies on a Spanish Blu-ray with a distinctive red box. At £23 it was expensive in this format for a bare-bones disc, but worth it considering the rarity. It would seem to be unauthorised, certainly by Cameron, but it's fantastic quality all the same. Most likely sourced from the same HD transfer that briefly showed up on British Sky TV a few years ago. I hope The Abyss gets the same treatment as the theatrical cut has been on Netflix in the past in HD. But it'll be the theatrical cut. Yeah. So True Lies is based on a 1991 French comedy film named La Totale. It's the same basic story wherein a boring computer programmer named Harry Tasker or Françoise Voisin in the French film leads a double life as a spy that he doesn't tell his bored wife Helene or Helen about. In both movies she is conducting a trepidatious affair with a douchebag on the side who ironically claims to be a spy but is in fact a used car dealer named Simon. He represents an exciting life for this housewife, and on absorbing this information, her husband decides to give her a pretend assignment to provide her with that thrill himself. Again, in both cases, they end up being kidnapped by the villains, then escape and foil their evil scheme, before winding up working together as a husband and wife spy duo who no longer lie to one another and wind up stumbling upon Simon, still playing pretend spy to get laid. However, the box office for the French film was $12 million, and just the budget alone for True Lies was 10 times that. So if you're going to watch the French movie, make sure you scale down your expectations as to what, there's no Harrier jump jets in this thing. I, I, I would be surprised if they, were, they could afford a car chase. Notably, True Lies was also produced by our scheming buddy, Larry Kazanoff. Yeah. The man behind Food Fight and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. My goodness. Thank God they didn't let him anywhere near the effects. Mm -hmm. This one, fortunately, was not one of his obvious grifts. Yeah, if, if Cameron's involved, he makes sure the money goes into the effects and not into Larry's Cayman Islands account. <laughs> Cameron decided to combine his two-time star Arnold Schwarzenegger, who at the time in 1994 was at the top of his game. Like this was the, the decade when it was, in England, he was simply referred to as Arnie. He was an icon at that point. And he had two kinds of film. He had his popular action films like Terminator 2, Total Recall and Predator. And he also had his popular comedies like Kindergarten Cop and Twins and Jingle All The Way. <laughs> I'm a cop, you idiot! I'm Detective John Kimball. This man is under arrest. Oh, excuse me. I forgot to introduce myself. My name is John Kimball. And I love my car. Now we're going to do something extremely fun. We're going to play a wonderful game called Who is my daddy and what does he do? Today we're going to play a new fun game. It's called Police School. Well, I've got news for you. You are mine now. You belong to me. You're not gonna have your mommy's run behind you anymore and wipe your little douches. Oh no, it's time now to turn this mush into muscles. No more complaining, no more Mr. Kimble have to go to the bathroom, nothing. 
There is no bathroom. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! To this day, I do not understand the balance of Kindergarten Cop. It's way too nasty for kids. It's way too cute for adults. James combined the two, and in doing so, considering the sci-fi nature of almost everything else he ever shot, and the sweeping period majesty of Titanic, Cameron created the most grounded family drama he will ever film. This follows The Terminator in 1984, where Cameron's fear of the nuclear annihilation of civilization came to light, then Aliens in 1986, wherein he critiques America's gung-ho military being manipulated by corporate interests, then The Abyss and T2 reiterated his anxiety over our own saber-rattling self-destruction. Later, both Titanic and Avatar would once again disparage pig-headed, greedy, powerful men, forcing the world to bend to their will and suffering for it. So that's why this middle work is a strange anomaly, being the most pro-military, the most pro-America, the only anti-Islamic film in his body of work. NRA gun-nut and hyper-conservative Charlton Heston plays their version of Nick Fury, even down to the fucking eye patch. Absolutely. And there's very much a naive black-and-white sensibility pervading throughout. Even when explaining to his wife just whom he has been killing, Harry, under the suggestible effects of sodium amytol truth serum, simply says, yeah, but they were all bad. Implicitly, here's your good guy with a gun. I have a theory about that, but I'll talk about that later. Okay. Grant Hesloff plays Faisal, a man of Middle Eastern extraction, on Harry's team. He's funny and Americanized, has nothing whatsoever to say about the conflict, and is thus one of the good ones. And True Lies wasn't alone in its mid-90s depiction of militant Islamics as figures of hilarity. Hot Shots Part Dieu, the year before, pretty much plays that card in half its scenes. If anything, even over Michael Bay movies and G.I. Joe that came later in the cinema, this feels the most like what Team America World Police is parodying. The peak hubris of the 90s after having aced the first Gulf War and experiencing several years of relative peace, unless you lived in Croatia or Bosnia or Rwanda or Algeria or Afghanistan or Kosovo or Yemen or Chechnya or Sierra Leone where there were wars, civil wars, uprisings, conflicts, genocides, all that stuff which is antithetical to peace. But America was relatively peaceful. It's a film that falls apart if you start taking the motives and the instigating outrage 
of these violent foreigners seriously. It would only be seven years until the Age of Terror began, a single, devastating, coordinated attack on American soil that would leave a nation jumping its shadows and amping up their aggression and paranoia of being attacked, controlled, and eventually forced to be considerate of others. But it's now been 20 years since that tragedy, and a generation have reached adulthood more worried about their own leaders and crazed white nationalists than those from the Middle East. So, let's talk about the experience of watching True Lies now. So we begin with the infiltration of a swanky party in a German manor house, literally infiltrated via the frozen lake. So how does this literal cold open differ from those in the Bond films? Interesting angle, because all the things I wrote down are how it matches Bond films. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you tell me how it matches, I'll tell you okay. how it differs. Right, so um, the things that stood out for me as being a, this is trying to make an American James Bond at least evoke that feeling to begin with, are the, you've got the foreign location, you've got this elegant and swanky party where he's surrounded by high status people. <laughs> And then you've got this combination of his action entrance, where he turns up in the... I think it's a swimming pool. Do you um, think it's just... Did he swim in through the filter? I don't know. I think it's a lake. You think it's a lake? Okay. I think it's like Metal Gear Solid. Okay. Right. That makes sense. So, uh, the water just looked very blue. It seemed a bit chlorinated, but okay. Blue water in a James Cameron <laughs> film? Never have I seen such things. <laughs> Uh, but the fact that he emerges from this uh, this icy lake with the scuba gear on, mm. and then it's that uh, cinematic effect where they basically cover the lake in wax. Wax, yes. And but the the foley artist was so good. I'm staring at it, going, I know that's wax, but the sound is yeah. right there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Then he whips off the scuba gear and he's got this impeccable tuxedo underneath. And he's even got some aftershave with him so that he can splash it on and, and look as though he's yeah. actually... Like, anybody who came across him in the first few minutes would be like, that's extremely fresh. But then I suppose he could have put it on in the car. I don't think people notice in, in parties that man just smells like he only just put on aftershave. I suppose so. Inauthenticity tends to stick out like a sore thumb to me, but, mm. uh, but yeah. Um, and so it does have this feel of not just a Bond film, but a Roger Moore Bond film. Ah, there was actually a Roger Moore Bond film where he crept up to a similar, I want to say a similar party, but in like a crocodile costume. So like <laughs> a crocodile swims up the river and then it opens its mouth and Roger Moore's head is in it. And he's like, ah, oh, excellent. And then awkwardly gets out. But then I've got this mental image of somebody coming out of scuba gear on a desert island wearing a full dinner suit. Mm. And I can't remember whether that was Bond or Austin Powers. This is the danger when parody exists and the same series self-parodies. And the self-parody becomes part of the main series. As in, not just an acknowledgement of past silliness, but a constantly recurring self-critique of Disney princesses. Honey, I'm home. Roger that. Copy at the boathouse. Right on time. Faisal, get your butt in here. Hurry's inside. Hey, you born in the barns? Poorhouse. But either way, this is the 
conjunction between the serious... Serious. I, the... I honestly don't think that Bond would ask us to believe, uh, despite all the submarine cars, <laughs> that you could wear comfortably wear a tuxedo under, under a wetsuit. <laughs> well, indeed. But this... this That's going too like, much, man. They are using legitimate spy frameworks, but there is enough comedy in there too mm. to make it feel like... They recognise the utter ridiculousness of half of it. I like the details in this film. If you watch it closely, there's lots of little details and little things that make the scenes feel more special rather than just plodding through. Like, with Bond films, it often feels like they're just going through the motions Mm. because they've got a formula to match. Especially the later ones. Yeah, and this was Cameron dabbling with Bond once. Mm. Yeah. And uh, for context, this was released as a summer blockbuster in 1994, five years after Licence to Kill, Timothy Dalton's second and last Bond film, and one year before Goldeneye, Pierce Brosnan's first Bond film, and two years before the first Mission Impossible. So the guaranteed success of Bond in the 90s, post-Cold War... Even with the newly cast Brosnan, and indeed the state of espionage action on the big screen was still very much a question mark. It hadn't really been done for several years. And also, we are a long way off Austin Powers and Bourne forcing them to recontextualise Bond. We're three years off of the first Austin Powers. But we are... But they took a long fucking time to react. To respond. It was 1997, and then 2002 uh, was Die Another Day, which descends into self-parody. And it wasn't until 2006, so nine years after the first Austin Powers, that Casino Royale came out. And they were actually reacting to being lampooned quite so much. But True Lies was effective. I I always felt when I... I, This was one of the first R-rated movies I saw in the cinema. It was uh, 15 in the UK. And since this was July 94, that means I was actually 13. Mm -hmm. Not quite uh, my birthday being in August. So not quite 14. And it felt like, ooh, I I get to watch a 15. It's a very weird R. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's... It's it's very PG thirteen, but then there's bits of violence where you go, ooh. Exactly. It's it's like it really does feel like the the gore and broken bones and the brutality of some of the kills yeah. are they feel very tacked on and like it could be removed easily for an aeroplane. Or perhaps a TV edit. Yeah. Yes. There's like if nothing else, just dampening the sound effects, which are very crunchy. And uh, Roger Ebert pointed out that the violence is so cartoonish that you can't really take the film seriously, and that's what it mm. wants. Yeah, it does very much feel like they're going for the comedic angle um, above all yeah. things. You're definitely supposed to have fun. You are not supposed to think. You are not supposed to take any of it seriously, which again, as you said, in retrospect, makes some of the choices really strange. Mm. Like The fact that they're Americans doing uh, a James Bond-style film... And they kind of pull off the whole, well, this is how it could actually happen. Mm. Um, and the, the fact that he leads a double life almost makes him kind of a superhero. Mm. So he's like coming back, yeah. kissing his wife goodnight after blathering on about um, a computer programmer's conference or mm. something like that. Yeah. And I got to say, this time around watching it like a hawk, I was like, there is no way on God's green earth that Arnold Schwarzenegger is this good of a liar. Because seriously, when he starts coming on like an art dealer 
and uh, an art specialist to Juno. Obviously, she's interested in him for other reasons. Um, but like, he's like, that's a nice piece. But like, the the moment she asks him a question, Bond does this all the time, where he sort of like delivers a bit of information that he he knows. But but when he's pretending to be someone he's definitely not in a profession he definitely isn't part of, it's almost always going to go awry and lead to him running away whilst things explode anyway. So he doesn't do the fucking homework. That is true. <laughs> However, but I will say this. But he, but Harry lies convincingly to his wife for seventeen years. Yes, he does, and that's the bit that's like, how well would he really be able to pull this <clears throat> off? But you kind of see it reflected when Helen starts having to lie to him, hmm. and it, it really does start to feel like actually they're both approaching it in the same way. He's just more practiced at it than she is. Hmm. But as far as the being able to, oh, yeah, Helen's also like when she starts pouring coffee later on, and he's rumbled her, and he's like oh, asking yeah, about her day. She's like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. That's, that's totally done, yeah. But that's very overdone. Your hand wouldn't really shake quite that much. Jeez. A bit, but not that much. The coffee but went the, everywhere. I, I will say that when it comes to being convincing in the professional context, there is an interpersonal skill that is basically framed around being able to talk intelligently and shallowly about certain things just enough, not that you could convince anybody that you're an expert, but that you can convince people that you at least have a passing knowledge. And in a in a situation where you're interacting with somebody at a party for 15 minutes, sometimes that's all it needs. Mm. And it it's, it is a skill. It is something that, in terms of social interaction, people acquire and get very good at. Mm. And uh, he does a tango here with Tia Korea. This is her other role after Wayne's World that she's known for, I think. And obviously the fact that this film is now forgotten means it's just Wayne's World. I think she was also in like a Tomb Raider t- a rip-off TV show called like Crypt Keeper. No, Relic Hunter. Good Lord. Shapeless. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not her, obviously. She didn't come up with the title, but still. Mm. She was in loads of movies starting in 1987 with Zombie Nightmare. Mm. And uh, most recently... The Legend of Hallowayan. Also in 2015, Tom and Jerry Spy Quest. Okay. Okay. Her name is Jezebel Jade. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. So, I mean, in this she plays a woman who is fairly unkindly depicted, mm. uh, who is Indeed. like the Bond villainess, yeah. effectively. Yeah. It's, it's a very... Juno Skinner. She's helping the big bad guy smuggle nuclear warheads into America mm. through her antique dealing also, and art. Also, using the uh, the term Juno for somebody who is two-faced. Mm, yeah. What were you going to say about Juno? Uh, the, the character that she plays is relatively superficial, but I do think that it's... She plays into a theme that's really strong with almost every character in this. And obviously this is one of the key points of the the thematic strength of the movie, which is one of Cameron's biggest... um, Feathers in his cap? Yeah. He's, versus other movies of this kind. Exactly, yeah. His characters go on arcs. He's, well, he's got this real strong way of presenting an overall philosophical concept in his films. And again, that's something that I'm going to come to. The way he's he's big. He moves in big things, big, big sweeping arcs. And I actually think it's to his detriment when he tries to get small. Mm. But the the fact that everybody in this is lying constantly there is almost no one in this whole film who tells the truth voluntarily until they are forced to and juno is 
not only living a life of deceit in the sense that she is a, a mercenary criminal and lying to her diplomatic contacts in order to ship out all of this, uh, these cultural artefacts from the Middle East, she's also lying about the fact that that's her role and she's in charge. And in actual fact, she's being brought in to facilitate something much more destructive. You're right about everybody lying. I'm trying to think of anyone who doesn't or isn't or wouldn't be in the context of having to pretend they're doing something else. Mm, yeah. The dude who gives Dana a lift to school is probably about the most honest person in this. Yeah. <laughs> and and he doesn't have any lies. He's listening to a cover version of Sunshine of Your Love, which is lying. Oh, a tissue of lies. <laughs> um... What's going on, man? Sick or something? Looks like that gut kicked. It's Helen. It's Helen. It's Helen. Helen. Has something to do with Helen, I'm guessing. Helen. 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 Is having an affair. Welcome to the club, man. <laughs> Nobody Helen. thinks it can happen to them the first time, buddy. Same exact thing happened to me with wife number two. Remember? I had no idea nothing's going on, right? I come home one day and the house is completely empty. And I mean completely empty. She even took the ice cube trays out of the freezer. What kind of a sick bitch takes the ice cube trays out of the freezer? So it's Helen. Hey, Harry. Hey, listen, Helen still loves you. You know, she just wants to bang this guy for a while, you know? It's nothing serious. You'll get used to it soon. Stop cheering me up! What'd you expect, Harry? Helen's a flesh and blood woman, and you're never there. It's just a matter of time. But Juno represents uh, the Helen's kind of nemesis on the other side of Harry's life, wherein, you know, when, when Helen finds out about Harry being a spy, Juno is this exotic, beautiful... Like, Jamie Lee Curtis said, said herself in interviews, you know, Juno is exotic and beautiful and uh, cunning and everything that Helen is not. I'm like, Jamie. <laughs> Jamie Lee you Curtis short here. <laughs> is the secret fucking weapon of this movie. Mm -hmm. She's Absolutely. fantastic. And if, if this character had been played by someone who didn't really get the role mm -hmm. and didn't really capitalise upon both the comedy and the drama the way that Jamie does... Mm -hmm. It would have been inferior. The key with Helen is that the the person playing her needed to be able to sell who she is, who she wants to be, and who she's capable of being. Mm. And the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis manages to pull all three of those off in what is a pretty... Thin. That's harsh. It's not a particularly deep film in terms of the dialogue and the, the interaction. It's very whip-quick and it's very witty. Mm. Um, but so much of it is in her physical performance. It's in expression. It's in body posture. It's in some of her comedy moments are incredible. Yeah. And again, this comes down to the details. Just little things she does mm. uh, that just like just add flavor and spice to a, a scene. And especially sometimes they almost feel like there's no way that a director could have said. Now, Jamie, do this. That almost had to be something that she improvised, and they went, "Yeah, that really works." But I, I really like the way that when that after this opening scene with the the gala, 
And the really quite excellent tango. That, so I mean, Schwarzenegger had to learn to dance, but he did really well he as sort of leading well, tier yeah. career. Absolutely. And th- when it reverts to his home life, I liked the touch that he has to have an information package to go back home with mm. his wedding ring. And here's a little quick reminder about who you are and where you've been. Yeah. And so ultimately, he's not really having to improvise these lies. Mm. He is being supplied them with an entire team full of... Uh, spy support staff. He is effectively undercover. Mm. Like, he's been 17 time. years undercover pretending not to be who he actually is. Yeah. The, uh, the, the Harry nerd is the mask. Mm. Indeed. Well, star of McBain and the upcoming film, Help, My Son is a Nerd. My son returns from a fancy East Coast college and I'm horrified to find he's a nerd. <laughs> I'm laughing already. It's not a comedy. Oh, it's I not do a comedy. Like the the diversion from the Bond stereotype in that he doesn't have to be alone in this because yeah. his workmate Tom Arnold is also his best friend in real life. Yeah, that also helps. Tom Arnold is also another very important cog in this machine. It's also this is the most entertaining Tom Arnold has ever been Great. in any movie. Mm. There are movies where he is unbearable. Mm. There's um, nine months. He's a monster. And he plays that monster accurately. He's awful in that. But in this, I mean, he he represents kind of a, a, an unpleasant kind of dude. And uh, his sad resignation to, well, my wife left me. And she like the, the speech about she even took the ice cube trays out of the uh, freezer. What kind of sick bitch does that? <laughs> and it's it's almost his, his line about women, you can't live with them, can't kill them. It's almost like Harry's challenge is to not become this embittered. But I really like the fact that he gets a handful of moments that show you that this front Mm. is a front. That there is a genuine person under that. He just doesn't let Mm. it through very much. There are times when he speaks to Harry seriously in a kind of, you're in way over your head at this point. uh, You are, for the start, he disapproves of Harry's manipulation of Helen, which Mm. kind of makes it a little bit more okay. It's not okay for for our hero to do this. Mm. But the movie questions Harry's dubious actions Mm. via Gib. Yes, indeed. And his best line is when Harry's getting all bent out of shape about the the fact that he thinks Helen's having an affair Mm. and he says, what did you expect? She's a flesh and blood woman and you're never there. Yeah. Uh, We also see Art Malik in this film. I think this was his only huge movie uh, that I I can think of. I think he was in Jewel in the Crown on TV. He was in The Living Daylights as one of the Muhajadeen uh, and effectively a good guy, an ally of uh, Timothy Dalton in that. As uh, uh, It's about Afghanistan and the brave freedom fighters there. Here, he plays Salim Abu Aziz, the sand spider, the nastiest terrorist who ever lived. And there was a little clip of him saying that he didn't think the character was a villain so much as misunderstood. I don't know whether he was uh, taking the piss or not, but he is playing a horrendous stereotype. Mm. And it's, it's, it's exemplified when uh, Harry and Juno have been talking. Harry's undercover as an art dealer now and, and sort of sniffing around where the, where the warheads are being brought into the country inside uh, ancient statues. And Aziz, masquerading as just a warehouse worker, communicates with Juno the following way. 
Maurizio, I said Saturday, not Tuesday. Saturday. Va bene. Ciao. Miss Skinner, may I have a word with you, please? Shamuta! Stupid, undisciplined bitch! It's a good thing you're paying me a lot of money. Do you realize there are surveillance teams watching this place right now? Your telephones are almost certainly tapped. And you were busy laughing and flirting like a whore with this Rehnquist. You checked that, okay? We do not tolerate mistakes. What would you like me to do? Find out where this Rehnquist is. It's not even one-dimensional in its depictions. It, it is entirely possible that what he intended to bring to the character hmm. was more multi-layered, and, and what was going on in his head in his performances was multi-layered, but that it doesn't seem like that was something that Cameron was ever going to let come through hmm. on screen. And this... I, okay, I'm going to say this now because it kind of informs on a lot of the other stuff that's of this nature throughout the film. Mm -hmm. This is one of the fundamental problems with James Cameron's work, and it is a reflection of one of his fundamental strengths. Mm -hmm. He speaks in extremely clear and very simple visual symbolism and shorthand. And in terms of communicating abstractions and big sci-fi concepts, that's fantastic. And it allows him to get ideas across that people before him just did not take seriously because he can communicate those ideas in a way that brings them to if, if you've never thought about these things in that way in your life before he brings it to a level that makes sense the problem is when he applies that re, that no it's not reduction that distillation to real-world issues that require finesse, that require nuance. It effectively, it makes it look like the things like nationality and religion and poverty, it comes through in Titanic with all, the, all of these incredibly cheery Irish people Being who are dying of starvation. But the, the way it comes across is that these... Uh, these situations which are extremely real forces in a lot of people's lives, to him, are abstractions. They're flavour. Yeah, and it makes some of his work, when it's not very carefully controlled, feel ridiculously privileged. Hmm. Yes, the whole way through. He has messages to send, but he's almost like an emperor descending from on high to say, I have observed this about our civilization. Now I shall return to my palace for another 15 years. Yeah. And I'll be honest, that does kind of come through when he interviews. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's taken uh, an almost... Knight's Templar level of obsession with his role as a director and has lived his entire life since the early 80s in this kind of, I will be not only a great director, but I will be the greatest director who ever lived. Mm, and to do this, you must sacrifice everything. Yeah. I think what it comes down to is he is a fantastic storyteller, but he is particularly well suited to certain types of story. And occasionally he will overreach and think that he can tell any kind of story. And he can't. And by greatest director, he me it means he looks at other people, he sees weakness and laziness. Mm. And he's like, well, you're not prepared to give 
absolutely everything for your art.、Mm, yeah, and honestly, you're not so prepared to start a new life. Under the sea. <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea if it's true or not. But if what you said at the beginning about it may just be that that revisiting the abyss and revisiting true lies make him feel uncomfortable、mm. because things went down during these films, and there are elements of the content of these films that he might well have reflected on later and gone, that wasn't great.、Mm. Back to the sand spider Aziz.、Uh, he is consumed with hate for America,、uh, with zero explanation as to why, because it's devastating to America's case. And this made me wonder what would happen if a different director had handled this in the in the mid nineties. It's not a film that could have been made ten years after this.、Mm. I was thinking Spielberg could conceivably have done this. It would have been just after Schindler's List. If anybody was going to. It would have to be somebody whose name and cachet would get the funding、mm. when the content was contrary to what the producers wanted、mm. to put out.、There. And when we say the funding, we mean at the time all the funding. True Lies at one hundred and twenty million dollars, which seems like a pittance now, it was the most expensive movie budget ever. And somehow Cameron is really good, seemingly at、They're、saying, "Give us more. I want more. <laughs> I want more than that." And then he's very successful at getting those movies to reap huge dividends. True Lies, by comparison, I think it made like not quite four hundred million, which was、mm. amazing in those days, but it cost a lot.、Mm. And but it's still a pretty good multiplier、yeah. for the for the mid nineties. We'll talk about the Titanic budget when it happened, but it was a huge source of contention for him as a filmmaker. But、um, yeah, most expensive movie. Ever made, and like you look at it now from、uh, in the modern era and go, what were you spending this on? And because we've seen Avengers since then, we've seen huge, huge things happening, fantastical sci-fi things, and in this, really, the most fantastical thing is Arnie gets into a Harrier jump jet and flies around a bit. That's that's a hundred twenty million. Okay. There's quite a few explosions. Yeah, there's there's explosions, but this was following the eighties. There were a lot of explosions. I'd, I'd, Pyrotechnics were big in SFX. I'd be very curious to know what Cameron's directing fee has a tendency to be. I'd be very、Lots. curious to know what Lawrence Kazanoff was doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure he never got his hands on it. Anyway. Oh, uh, Certainly not all of it. Brad Fidel came back.、Uh, he was the composer for. Remember, we already mentioned that Cameron has had issues in the past with composers that he has pushed to their limit.、Mm-hmm. So it was Brad Fidel with the Terminator,、uh, and then、uh, James Horner for Aliens, who said he would never work with him again afterwards. Then Alan Silvestri for The Abyss. Then Brad Fidel back for T Two. Then Brad Fidel back for this. And then after James Horner's work on Braveheart,、uh, where he made everything sound very, very Scottish slash Irish,、uh, Cameron asked him to come and make Titanic sound like that,、mm. and it won him huge Oscar、uh, accolades that way. So you know, breaking his vow and coming back and working in that. There、capacity. is a pattern of that. People、yeah. have a bad time with James Cameron. They say they'll never work with him again, and then, and then eventually, sometimes they later, do. Unless they go,、oh, right. they're Mary Elizabeth, Master Antonio, <laughs> or Ed Harris, in which case, no.、Uh, there was. I don't think there's anyone in the abyss who came back 
frankly, they had it. Oh, uh, Michael Bean came back for deleted scenes of Terminator, Terminator 2, 2 yeah. uh, that are in the extended version. But that's it. He never came back after that. And uh, James Horner stuck around for Avatar uh, more than uh, so 12 years later after Titanic. And I'd love it if Alan Silvestri were able to compose a score for at least one of the Avatar sequels. Though currently the composer for Avatar 2 is someone named Simon Franglen. Fidel composed Cocaine, One Man's Seduction, a 1983 TV movie, and then The Terminator the year after that. He did Fright Night, the original, Oh, you're so cool, Brewster! Uh, the Big Easy in 86, Fright Night Part 2, The Accused... Serpent and the Rainbow. Blue Steel with uh, Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis. Curtis. T2 Judgment Day. Gladiator, no, not that one, a 1992 film. The Real McCoy, that's that the one with um, Kim Bassinger and Val Kilmer. She's like a, a thief or something like that. Striking Distance with Bruce Willis. Uh, Blink with Madeline Stowe. Then Johnny Monomic in 1995. Uh, the uh, Alan Rickman film, Rasputin, Dark Servant of Destiny, where he played Rasputin. And then Mistral, a TV movie in 1996, and that was pretty much it. He's still alive, he's 70 years old. Hmm. But um, his work on True Lies, it's very synthy. It's almost one of the last synth scores, because we were moving towards much more orchestral type compositions mm. as we uh, aged out into the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. There's a central melody to the True Lies that which reminds me of Highlander. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Mm. It, it, the music feels a bit backgroundy for me. Mm. It's it's such a big... It's there to establish mood, but not really to underpin emotion. Exactly, and it also doesn't really underpin the action, yeah. particularly. It's it's fine, it's good music, There's but it a kind doesn't of a... feel quite bonded with what we're seeing on screen. I think it relates more to the Lalo Schifrin Mission Impossible doom, 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 and then the flutes that are... Yeah. See that? that kind of like creeping sound. Doo, yeah. doo, doo, doo. While his work on True Lies is less memorable, I do not in any way want to diminish Brad Fidel's part in how impactful Cameron films have been. His work on the original Terminator and Terminator 2 is absolutely unforgettable. It almost feels like there's two approaches to this film that are kind of at odds with each other and sometimes it really works which is what makes it funny when it's funny mm -hmm. but it does feel like it's taking the the seriousness of the spy thriller up to this point like 70s spy thrillers were meant to be serious taken serious three days of the condor yeah and the Ipcris file. blending them with the over-the-top ridiculousness of the Arnold Schwarzenegger action film. Yeah, yeah. The actual time when he tears apart the uh, terrorist army at the end, it's very commando. It's mm. very, he runs around, grabs whatever weapons are available and just like sprays bullets and fire around the place, seemingly ridiculously at ease with what he's doing. Mm. It's interesting, if you watch his face, he doesn't have that hardness that he pulls out in both Predator and Commando when he's just like that frown that you know like he's not this is his kindergarten cop face it's more of a sort of I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do this yeah he's but, quite earnest but it's an earnestness he's never worried though he's never terrified Helen's going to die yeah and I feel like that's a misstep in this film like it should you could really ramp up the tension by having Helen be injured mm -hmm. and him be 
this is my awful life has dragged you into this, well, but you can't then have that ending. Especially considering that his reasons for, for not telling her any of this over the last 17 years, yeah. and his reasons for being verbally shitty to her when they get captured and put on the plane, yeah. I might add, are so that she won't get hurt. So show us that he's afraid of that, because he doesn't really seem to be. But... That wasn't this era. No. The Daniel Craig Bonds, we particularly like that aspect of yeah. them. The the whole being a spy is actually really dangerous and frightening, less fun than you might imagine. Yeah. There is a fundamental element, by the way, of this movie that completely undermines any possibility of taking it seriously. And that is the fact that you would not have a secret agent who looked like Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. He looks wherever, astonishing. Wherever he goes, everyone's going, going to, to remember him. him. Yeah. You want to really look like Rufus Sewell. Yeah, you want to be somebody who can like disappear in a crowd and if you, you can stand in an elevator with somebody for five minutes and they might still not really remember what you look like. Steve Carell. Yeah. In uh, uh, Get Smart or yeah, Jude Law in Spy, maybe. He's yeah. still a bit too See, handsome. Even Daniel Craig, I think, is a little bit questionable because yeah. those eyes are so He's vivid. T- he walks around like a Terminator yeah, sometimes. Yeah, he does, yeah. 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 So again, it's stretching believability, but I mean, it's it's a fantasy film. It is required. That's is. the sci-fi element at play here. Indeed. We have to imagine a world where people go just just the Austrian oak. That's fine. Yeah. He's just doing the tango with this uh, beautiful lady, and we're not going to specifically all look at him. Absolutely, last action hero. It feels like this could take place in the same world as Last Action Hero. We will cover Last Action Hero. That is a fascinating, ahead-of-its-time action comedy satire (laughs) mess. Uh, But but also extremely enjoyable to watch. Now, I recommend folks track it down. Um, So... There's a bathroom fight which actually looks like the one in Casino Royale. I marked that down as well. Right, this is this has got to be one of the contributing factors to why I hate bathroom, bathroom fights. fights. Anything that involves someone getting hit over the head or having their head bounced off a ceramic sink. It's not like or a teeth went cover. flying. I There's know, no it's blood. It's not that visual. And honestly, I do think they dialed the sound down a little bit on this one. Yeah. But this kind of of violence and aggression that involves sanitation porcelain a very slippery floor and a very slippery floor just sends me into paroxysms of terror okay Uh, i read the (laughs) i read the novelization of this because in the 90s that's what you did or the the 80s yeah if you couldn't see the film you found a novelization at a jumble sale for 2p and you bought it that was my cinema education in the late 80s and uh, obviously this was based on uh, uh, the original shooting script before they took certain things out and there's a a specific bit that we'll talk about later uh, involving a grenade which was definitely there in the filming but they removed but the, I do always remember the florid language around this bathroom fight. The old man who's just, uh, you know, just in one of the stalls going, oh, good gracious, what's going on out there? While Sean Sonega's wiping the floor with these two terrorists. Sometimes literally. It says, uh, like, at one point, like, the door got kicked in and inside was an old man who looked like he'd just cracked a pineapple. <laughs> I'm like... That's very specific. It's extremely specific. And then there's the, uh, the the chase through the hotel where the sand spider turns up, starts shooting at Harry, then turns tail and runs off, grabs a Kawasaki, grabs a hostage, rides through the uh, hotel, causing all kinds of kerfuffle, like creating the biggest 
like everyone can see you scenario. How do you operate? There this... is a horse in a shopping mall. <laughs> it's a hotel, <laughs> but it's it's horse chasing motorbike, which feels like we like this on some subconscious level as uh, cinema viewers because it's like he's got he's one step down you've got this technology of the motorbike and yeah. he's more like a cowboy hero I was just about to on say, a horse it makes him feel like a wild west hero and yeah. that's clearly what they were aiming for and he's for. got a duster as well however I will say this this entire scene all I can do is be terrified for the horse because I just keep thinking that horse should not be cantering on that surface as you should be terrified for the uh, horse the horse nearly killed Arnold Schwarzenegger and itself during the scene when the horse has to basically jump across between the rooftops or, or refuse to or which refuse I, to. I noted as uh, Harry's disregard for the horse and the animal's he's very like, sensible refusal to go along with his boneheaded yeah. plan yeah he's like let's come on let's jump because like, Aziz like fires the Kawasaki across the street and lands in a fucking pool like mm. jumping across the way Blade does I don't think he gets close enough to that edge mm. to realise there's a pool out there I think yeah. he was just taking a chance and uh, whereas the horse goes this is a bunch of bullshit Shit, and stops in its tracks and, and Schwarzenegger goes over mm. but a camera boom hit the horse uh, during one of the uh, shoots and it went crazy spinning and rearing near a drop of 90 feet what the fuck were they doing it up that high in the first place that was just you didn't need to get the horse up that high it was how do you get the horse back down the stairs well yeah good question do, okay we've seen the setup that you had for the Harrier jump jet you could do that for the horse, buddy. She's got the horse chained up in the attic <laughs> very cruelly when there's clearly a horse barn outside. Hey, Pippi, it's a little <laughs> tall up here. <laughs> they, they force the horse to look at the barn, too. It's really screwed Looks up. Looks like there's a lot of hay in there, Pippi. A lot of room for me to lay down. <laughs> you know a bed's useless to me, right, Pippi? <laughs> You'll eat whole raw fish and like it, horse. <laughs> Yeah, she does feed that horse raw fish. She's like, are you fucking kidding me? She's trying to feed it fish, and then she's shocked when the horse is like, I don't eat fish. <laughs> so, all right. so they fucking... You should go back to school, Pippi. <laughs> you should learn that a long time ago. Schwarzenegger quickly slid off the horse, and stuntman Billy O'Lucas, who was one of uh, Arnold's main doubles and closest friends, caught him. Uh, so the roof is it's like a false roof. It's not actually at the top of a, ho a hotel oh, yeah. or a shopping mall. They, they constructed it, but it was still high, high up off the ground with crash mats beneath um, and the stuntman caught him and uh, Schwarzenegger said this is why I will always love stunt people they say never work with children and animals no never work with animals and James Cameron <laughs> yeah or never work with James Cameron and water <laughs> Never work with James Cameron and dot, 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 insert here. But honestly, I feel like uh, the makers of Casino Royale, not just Martin Campbell, but Eon, like mm. sat down and watched their competitors. And one of the first ones was True Lies, mm. that they rewatched to show what had happened in the interim during Brosnan's run. Mm -hmm. And I like that bathroom fight, I feel like that filtered its way through. The big crane at the end, mm. that's part of the whole parkour sequence in Casino is. Royale. So yeah. I feel like yeah. this did have an influence although obviously this is far less grounded mm, indeed although this is I think one of the reasons why a lot of the action scenes still feel really effective mm. is because they are there are elements of them that have been reused since in scenes which are even more effective and therefore mm. you have that uh, that parallel going on yeah. in your head see it's not just a car it's a total image an identity you have to go for 
This isn't some high-tech sports car. Tell you the truth, it doesn't even handle that great. But that's not the idea, is it? What are we talking about here? Pussy, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Let's face it, Harry. The vet gets him wet. But it's not enough. If you really want to close escrow, well, you gotta have an angle. Suppose you have an angle. <laughs> it's killer. I mean, look at me. I'm not that much to look at. No, 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 I can be honest. But I got them lining up. And not just the skanks, either. Well, some are. So what's the angle? <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. Trade secret. Okay. Just ask yourself. What do women really want? You take these bored housewives married to the same guy for years, they're stuck in a rut. They need some release. Promise of adventure, a hint of danger. I create that for them. So basically, you're lying your ass off the whole time. You see, I couldn't do that. <laughs> what are you, a boy scout? No, no, no. Think of it as playing a role with fantasy. I mean, you gotta work on their dreams. Get them out of their daily suburban grind for a few hours. And what about their husbands? Dickless. I mean, let's face it, if they took care of business, I'd be out of business, you know what I mean? <laughs> Those idiots. <laughs> Hey, hey, you mind keeping it under 90? I'm still trying to pay for this dental work. So, who are you working on right now? <laughs> I always got a couple on the hook, you know. There's just one right now. I got her pinned like a dog. <laughs> it's great. What does she do? Some sort of legal secretary or something. You know, a tight and conservative. Oh, but she could be so hot if she wanted to be. And with you, she gets to be real hot, huh? <laughs> Red hot! Yeah. Her thighs, steam. <laughs> like a dying plant just needs a little water. Married to some boring jerk. Married to some boring jerk. Yeah, you know, he doesn't appreciate her. She's like all these babes. You get their pilot lit, they can suck start a leaf blower. <laughs> oh, gosh, she's got the most incredible body and a pair of titties make you want to stand up and beg for buttermilk. Ass like a 10-year-old boy. <laughs> So I mean, that's the last of the spy stuff for a while because then the actual uh, spy-inflected family drama comes in as Harry finds out that his wife is seeing a man on the side who he immediately suspects of being another, a counter-operative using Helen to get to him. Mm. Weirdly, the, the lead-in for all of this, which is the interaction between Harry, Helen and Dana towards the beginning and then um, Helen being at work kind of made me feel like they were drawing on Jingle All The Way more than anything else. It's that didn't happen for three more years. Oh. Uh, 96, uh, two more years. Oh, okay. All right. Well, Back up on then that. I stand corrected. But it, it does have that feel of Daddy Works Too Much, which was very much a mid-90s, mid-90s thing. thing yeah. Get off your mobile phone, Daddy. No one else ever uses them. Well, why do you have to work so late, Daddy? Well, because America has a ridiculous corporate culture. Let's start with that. Everybody take daddy for granted. Just listen to the radio. Everything's mama. Dear mama. I always love my mama. Mama, mama, mama. What's the daddy song? Papa was a rolling stone. <laughs> Nobody give a fuck. Nobody appreciates daddy. Now, mama got the roughest job. I ain't gonna front. But come on, at least people appreciate mama. That's right. Every time mama do something right, mama get a compliment. Because women need to hear compliments all the time. Women need food, water, and compliments. 
That's right. That's right. Women got their head all the time or they lose their mind. And your daddy makes sure you thank your mama for everything. Tell your mama how good the food is. Tell your mama how nice the house looks. Tell your mama how, nice, how her hair looks. Did you tell your mama? Tell your, you better go in there and tell your mama. That's right. Tell your mama, tell your mama, tell your mama. Nobody ever tells daddy shit. I'm talking about the real daddy that handles the fucking business. Nobody ever says, hey, daddy, thanks for knocking out this rent. <laughs> hey, daddy, I sure love this hot water. <laughs> hey, daddy, this is easy to read with all this light. I will say, before they got to the horse stunt, as they're going up in two adjacent outside glass elevators, Harry's glaring up at... Uh, Aziz, who glares down at him, but it's not kind of like a a look of hatred. Like, Harry's got this kind of, I'm gonna get you look in his eyes, and Aziz can feel it. There's a a little, like, unspoken moment between them that when Aziz realises this guy on a horse is not gonna back down. He's not gonna be distracted. He's gonna keep coming. Someday that'll change, and then you'll get the chair long stuck in the chair! And again... I really wish Aziz had been fleshed out as a character and that maybe his, the thing he wanted to do was less just sheer destruction and less just terrorism. Yeah. It really does feel like, I mean, I think that the original film... Pillar of Holy Fire, just like the most obvious cartoon version of events. Yeah, I, I think the original film, the villains want to blow up a football stadium yeah. or something. Yeah. But it honestly feels like the villains in this are so secondary. They are there to create Mm. threat and tension, but that's really all. Just have them be like some kind of jewel heist ring or something Mm. like that. It doesn't need to be this big. But it does, because if you want to justify $120 million, and and because he ramped up the stakes so much and made it so black and so white, it does have this sheer naivety threaded throughout and the things we keep asking for are things that didn't happen in the 90s they do now because cinema has evolved has as storytelling and writing but there is and we've we've talked about this before when we've discussed michael bay's films there is a little bit of cross hatching at the edges between cameron's films and bay's films Mm. and honestly this is probably the one of cameron's oeuvre that feels the most like a bay film yeah like i said about uh, team america this is the, the where they they cross paths with each other and uh, there's a li- like a humorless version of this film could be done by Zack Snyder but then when Helen finds out she goes I will totally back you up sir because I am one of Snyder's women mm-hmm. as it is she's one of Cameron's women but we'll talk about that later yes so um as it turns out, this, this counter-operative is in fact duping Helen, played by the late, great Bill Paxton, oh, who so is, was so unappreciated in his time. He's kind of one of those guys who always plays a scumbag. Like, he so rarely gets to be leading man and, and heroic. I think he is in Twister, mm. but even then he just seems to be distracted by hurricanes. Yeah, and he's kind of decent in Titanic, but even then he seems to be distracted by finding this big ship. Nah, Cameron and him know what they're playing. There's a point when he <laughs> kneels down next to old Rose and, and says, you know, we're looking for this giant diamond the size of a testicle, which makes you 
my new best friend. And he, he has that cheesy grin. And I think the, there's two things that make Simon very visibly like this pathetic creep. The mustache, which even in the mid-90s was becoming kind of dated and a little bit creepy and, and weedy looking. Just, just a mustache and that floppy hair. It just makes him look a, a bit sickly. And the point where later on uh, he's being held over a dry reservoir and he's just wearing his vest and shorts, but socks as well. Just yes. keep him in socks. Oh. It's like, no, no, leave, leave them, them on. on. That's so much sexier. <laughs> but yeah, Simon's behavior in this throughout is like, yeah, it makes it clear he's a sleazeball who lies to women. Mm-hmm. He has actually got incredibly low self-esteem. Even when he's describing his conquests, he's like, and not just the skanks. Well, some are. And it's, it's almost like he gives away way too much. He absolutely Too does. soon. And, and again, how did he convincingly lie to Helen? Yes, indeed. Also, the fact that that scene, there's a little bit of Harry fantasizing about how he's going to deal with this shithead. And that therefore makes it a bit difficult to know what Simon says that he actually says. Simon says. Mm, indeed. I want to play a game, there Detective is, John McClane. There is a really subtle visual thing as well that contributes to Simon's sleaziness. Beyond his kind of foolish grin. Beyond, well, if not for me, do, do it for your country. country. That's please sleep with me. It's connected to the grin. Right. Uh, this could be total coincidence, but I saw this and I was like, oh, if that was on purpose, that was really good. There's a point where he says to Harry, and it's it's when Harry's driving just a little bit too fast, and he says, I'm still trying to pay off this dental work. Mm. But when he laughs, he's got gaps in his teeth at the back. Ah. That means if he has had dental work recently, he only paid to get the front fixed. Wow. I don't know, but maybe uh, Paxton worked that into his character. We, like we, I said, could be complete we'll probably never know. But, but it is, it, if, it's, if it's deliberate, mm. it plays in really well to the only the front matters element of this mm. guy. So Harry, after freaking out about Helen and then being sort of held back by uh, Gib and uh, like, not that he's going to go off the handle at Helen, but like, he's like, I'm going to do something. And he's got like Arnold Schwarzenegger, big flared eyes. And whenever Schwarzenegger starts to lose it, he's not very good at getting really angry angry it's comical it's like shut up like when he goes cold and dead-eyed that's when he's scary mm. but like the whole flared eye thing. no he never does that which yeah. is obviously a, an intentional decision on the part of both actor and director yeah. we never want harry to be scary to kids in the audience and, and women he, yeah, in the audience absolutely and when he does things around people that he is actually close to it's always handled and responded to in a very specific way when he he gets really angry when gib is reading him the transcript and he punches the car window give me the goddamn page and gib doesn't respond at all he keeps his eyes on the page well, no, he, then he hands over the missing No, no, he pauses, looks at the broken window, and then just sort of hands it over in a kind of, okay, yeah, he's serious. Yeah, but but he he's not afraid. Exactly. He, he's not flinching yeah. away. He's not afraid that, that Harry yeah. is going to hit he, him. It is never implied that Harry is a wild animal. Yeah. But there is a point where Harry is pretending to be interested in a Corvette that Simon is selling. Mm. And again, he's masquerading as, as a buyer. At when Simon's talking about Helen unwittingly to her husband mm. and probably exaggerating the level of... Again, I don't know if he really says this. I think this might be just Harry imagining him. Well, <laughs> Harry d- responds by backhanding him and smashing his nosebone into his brain, leave- just dropping him dead. 
while he was laughing and then it holds for an alarmingly long amount of time on Schwarzenegger just going got him (laughs) and then it cuts back to him laughing and it was just a weird sudden violent fantasy it's the darkest the film gets Mm. I think but again it holds you in a kind of a shocking oh shit did that happen yeah Yeah. I like dark moments like that because it allows you to play with the audience and they can be shocked but then go not really yeah that reminds me actually there's another moment of Bill Paxton's that's really good with this when they go to get out of the Corvette and he's trying to convince Harry to actually buy it mm-hmm. and Harry says let me think about it he has this this flash of disappointment that really emphasizes the insecurity yeah. that sits under everything oh he's fairly desperate to sell yeah oh he's god like, yeah yeah hey because it's you. And again, there's just that, that sheepish grin on Simon. He's Again, he's a secret weapon of this film. He's not in it nearly enough. But it also feels like if he had ended up being kidnapped as well mm. and was along for the ride, oh, oh my God, would that have gotten so irritating. Yeah. They've done that in Transformers films mm. and it is too much. Yeah. So there was just enough of Simon in this. Although apparently this upset... Uh, certain people because it felt like Schwarzenegger was bullying this little guy but he is shown so repeatedly to be a creep who denigrates women so it's like it's okay Mm, yeah and also the fact that the final blow to his dignity is struck by Jamie Lee Curtis yeah and And he's unrepentant he carries on with this shit and does the same thing again absolutely he learns precisely dick yeah However, speaking of denigrating women, Harry's behaviour, while I said it was challenged by Gibb, he actually ends up stalking his wife, using his resources to monitor and manipulate his wife, Mm -hmm. and effectively using government hours and tech to conduct criminal investigations to someone he shouldn't be investigating, who happens to be a woman he should have trusted. Yeah, and he dismisses the fact that this is all not only illegal, Mm. but horribly unprofessional, ridiculously misogynistic, and incredibly unfair on somebody that he purports to love by saying, oh, we do it all the time. And yes, we know... And we are doing it 20 times a day, so don't give me that crap! We know he's reaching for justification, but ultimately, I just... It's not not undercut as much as it really needed to be to to make it feel like it's narratively justified and also when helen eventually punches him the film seems to say now they're even yeah (laughs) it's like it's like the the scene where he pretends to be somebody else and he's gone to such lengths to set this up he's had someone with a sexier voice than arnold schwarzenegger record him a little dictaphone a french man a french man yeah uh, so that he can play instructions to her. My God, that, that so many things could have gone wrong with this. It's a, it's a hell of a scene, and don't get me wrong, the way this plays out, if you set this up as a fantasy where they both know what's going on, oh my God, it's incredibly erotic. It really, really could be. How but, ever. But the fact that throughout the whole thing, Helen has no idea and is terrified. <laughs> the the real overstep is when she lies down on the bed and he comes over with the rose and the music is playing it all like, oh, but he's her and husband he and he loves her. her and it's romantic. And no, she is shit scared. That is not fair. And... <laughs> The fact that he... I completely agree. Yeah, the the fact that he does kind of realise after she's beat the crap out of him with the telephone... Oh, yeah, she gets several hits in on him, I forgot. The fact that he does 
kind of realise he doesn't have to call out to her at that point. He didn't have to tell her that it was him mm. at that stage. He could have let her go, rolled could off to the side of the bed. Could have let her go and then tried to explain himself So, later. yeah, actually, that so does suggest he was... to give him that yeah, little bit of redemption. That maybe and on some level he predicted that she would... Like, I was like, what's the best you think's going to happen on this particular thing? I think eventually his plan was to reveal, actually, it was me, yeah, and yeah. then tell her the truth. Or even that he was expecting her... But it was a fucked her. up way of doing exactly. it. Exactly. Even that he was expecting her at that point to open her eyes mm. and, and then he'd tell her. But fundamentally, it's too little too late. It, it kind of narratively then feeds into the fact that they both get kidnapped and there isn't an opportunity after this for him to explain himself any further. Mm. And therefore, that whole setup kind of goes unexplained. Yeah. Certainly goes unapologized. Because for. after this point, we're just climbing the hill towards the final roller coaster push thing absolutely, around. Absolutely, absolutely. But this is one of the first. I think it's it maybe the second uh, scene in which Jamie Lee Curtis is is basically one of Cameron's women. James Cameron's women do not freeze. Mm. They are they are active and they respond to their situation with. Uh, decisive momentum. Even if it's a like, what the hell do I do? Well, I'm going to bloody well react. Yeah. And I I really like that. Mm. But he does it so often and it kind of became the fabric of this, the the strong woman stereotype that got repeated over and over and over again. But I do like the fact that because Helen is seen as this mousy housewife at the beginning, I mean... I say that, and I'm housey sat there mouse going, wife. it's Jamie Lee Curtis. I'm yeah. not thinking she's a mousy housewife at all. She does a good job of sort of convincing us that Helen's a geek. Yeah, a little bit. Actually, yeah, because Jamie Lee Curtis is a geek herself, so yeah. that, that does kind of work. She does but, cosplay. But even early on in the game, when she's being interrogated, the fact that her response is to pick up mm. the stool and start smashing the shit out of the two-way mirror. I was getting to that. Yeah. That moment, that whole scene is the centerpiece of this movie. Mm. It combines all the drama, all the threads of the movie that we're working up to. And because Harry is not playing Harry at that point, he's behind this glass, you get Helen being absolutely truthful. And she ends up telling him more than she ever could to Harry, Mm. and then ends up controlling the scene by losing control. That whole, like, her fury, you know, like I said, Harry gets angry, but she lashes out. She smashes the mirror. She starts going, no, I did not sleep with him. She's just got this fire. It's already been kindled by Simon kind of describing her as smoking hot. And he's like, Helen, really smoking hot? And then Harry is now starting to see a side of her he hadn't been looking for before, mm. as is she. See, I don't think... But it's... she doesn't know she's being observed in that capacity. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily that Harry doesn't think that she, think of her as smoking hot. It's that he has lost the ability to grasp that anyone else would see her as smoking hot. It's like, I appreciate Mm. her, she's my wife, but the idea of anybody else seeing her that way, that's the thing that he's got blinkered about. Yeah, he's been cucked and he's furious. (laughs) Cucked by Simon! Good lord. I'm going to play an abbreviated version of that scene. Just listen to how the drama flows in this and how honest Jamie's performance is. Take special note of where the tensions lie, when the tables turn, where our allegiances are, and thus, who holds the actual dramatic power of this scene. I'm just a legal secretary. Sure, Mrs. Tasker. What are we doing with the international terrorist Carlos the Jackal taking dictation? How long have you been a member of his faction? I 
satisfaction. I just met Simon, or whoever you say he is, just a, a couple weeks ago. I, I barely know him. That's not what it looked like when we found you. Why did you continue to see him? He said he needed my help. Not because you were attracted to him? No. You mean you weren't attracted to him at all? Well, maybe just a little. So is cheating a common thing for you? No, never. So you're telling me this was your first time? I huh? wasn't cheating! Tell me about your husband, Mrs. Tasca. Harry? I mean, I, what can I say about Harry? I mean, he's a sales rep for a computer company. So sex with him isn't exactly waving your flag anymore. That is none of your goddamn business now. What kind of questions are these? You're in a lot of trouble, Mrs. Tasker, so I suggest you cooperate. If we want to know the most intimate details about your life, you better tell us. My husband is a good man. But he's not exactly ringing your bell these days, is he? Let me handle this part. I mean, do you mind? Why did you go to Carlos's hideout? He wanted me to go to Paris with him on a mission to pose as his wife. And you agreed? Why? I don't know. I guess I needed something. What did you need? I needed to feel alive. I just wanted to do something outrageous. And it felt really good to be needed. And to be trusted. And to be special. Just that there's so much I wanted to do with this life, and it's like I haven't done any of it. And the sand's running out of the hourglass, and I just wanted to be able to look back and say, See? I did that. I was reckless, and I was wild, and I fucking did it! Quite frankly, I don't give a shit whether you understand that or this Simon, did you sleep with him? No. She's lying. You, you mean you did not have sexual relations with him? Bearing in mind the exact definition of what sexual intercourse is was a hot topic in the 90s. This was kind of a precursor to that. Listen, if you're going to ask me every question twice, this is going to take a really long time and I have to get back to my family. You're not going anywhere, lady. Just let me out of here! Answer the question. Answer the question! No! I did not sleep with him! Calm down, please. You hear me, you chicken chip Calm down. You could be telling the truth. Calm down, Mrs. Tasker. 
Calm down, please. I've only one more question, Mrs. Tasca. What? Do you still love your husband? Yes, I love him. I've always loved him. And I will always love him. She loves you. Now what? Uh, but yeah, no, the, the whole uh, the whole seduction scene where Simon has these plastic goblets and like and, and tickets to Paris, which were probably Mop fake. Ups. Oh, absolutely, they were fake. You do not think he sprang for tickets to Paris, do yeah, you? Yeah, no. This is what's going to happen is he's going to pork this housewife mm. and then go. I've just got a call from the government agents. I've got you won't to go. See me again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, the whole like seduction and, and Helen's like, okay, I will do this thing, and she's toying with and playing with the idea of all of this in, in her life and what she wants is this excitement mm. but then it leads up to this life being a cartoon version of the scary thing so rather than Helen realising oh my god the excitement is actually terrifying and dangerous it is scary to her but it's also survivable fun roller coaster scary mm. and she proves herself to be quite good at it in yeah. the end I think also there's an element of uh, she genuinely does feel like Harry's there therefore she can handle anything yeah but when she uh, it's a, it's a Boris and Doris are the uh, code names given for her contact and um, and her code name when she turns up at the hotel for and what appears to be an attempted seduction by an agent that she mm. she is playing. She's, she's to, the one seducing. Yeah, she's supposed to plant a bug, but get in there by yeah. pretending to be his date. And she's wearing this dress she clearly hasn't worn for decades. And sort of starts sort of looking at it. And it's got these awful frills on the top and the bottom. And she does look awkward as hell. And then does an improvised, like, let's make this look sexier. And then gets water out of a plant pot and, like, smooths down her hair. And again, this is why she's the dynamite that the movie hangs upon. You think it's a Schwarzenegger film. He is, frankly, supporting her through this journey. Like, we're, we're here for Schwarzenegger, but she's the one who's mm. actually She's growing. the one who gets all the flashbacks and the cutaways yeah. so that her story gradually, we see more depth to it than we did before. And it's all in this looking at herself in the mirror and going from, I look terrible and ridiculous and who's going to want to be, you know, be seduced by me and, and like, he's going to smell a rat immediately until she's eventually sort of looking at herself and going, you know what? I look pretty good. I look pretty hot. I can actually do this. I can totally do this. And she's like glaring at herself in a kind of yeah way. And then the moment she turns around and walks towards the room, she trips on her own high-heeled shoe just to illustrate how this whole thing is a fantasy. Mm. And she is still the Helen that we know. Yeah. And she's kind of indulging herself. It's, again, little details that give us that comedy. And the dance... while one of the sexiest, smokinest, hottest things ever is also hilarious because of her trips and her falls and her, am I actually gonna do this? Like moments and like, yes, go with it. And it's, I don't 
think that scene comes off as sexist because we're totally with her the whole time. Like, while she is super smoking hot, especially because Harry's gone really above and beyond, like, that. This he's out of order, we're now with Helen. Absolutely. And, and it's what we've said before about yeah. it's not male gazy because the point of the scene is not how she looks, it's how she, she feels, feels about herself. Yeah. 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 Which is rare and McGee, for example, just picking a name out of a hat, would have fucked that one up. What did they give you? Sodium Mamadon, or some other truth agent. It makes you tell the truth? Mm-hmm. Is it working? Ask me a question that I normally would like to. Are we going to die? Yep. I'd say it's working. They're going to shoot us in the head, or they're going to torture us to death. Okay. Or they're going to leave us here under the bomb. Harry! Up. How long have you been a spy, Seventeen years. Have you ever killed anyone? Yeah, but they were all bad. Okay, so then uh, they get kidnapped by terrorists and then there is a sort of a attempted torture scene where they're being told uh, that... And this, like, the, the, the drag and the pulling out of, of, of Helen realising who Harry is and the, like, that her world kind of explodes outwards and outwards and it's almost not unexpected for her because she believed that this was real mm. um, to begin with and then the actual reality comes crashing in. Yeah. But then the finding out how involved with it Harry is kind of rocks her world. And they, the moment where Harry's effectively injected with truth serum is a masterstroke of the film because while she has told him the absolute truth mm. without knowing it in the interrogation room... He now is at her mercy and is obliged to tell her the absolute truth. It reminded me of the scene at the end of Kill Bill Volume 2. It's, mm, it's yeah. when you can't lie anymore, and uh, I found this in writing scenes with Seth, suddenly everything becomes much more... Like, like when you are obliged to tell a truth you don't want getting out there, it becomes fascinating to watch the characters move through that. Mm. The only problem I have with this scene is that they don't do anywhere near enough with it. Helen's been under the microscope. Do it to Harry. I would have sacrificed multiple action scenes to see Schwarzenegger dramatically pour his heart out. The tone of what's going on here, and it's interesting that you described it as sort of the, the world expanding around her. Mm. To me, it felt like everything was tightening. You've got these layers of deceit that they've all put into place ah. that are now starting to close around them. Like a and trap, yeah. They're putting Harry's mission at risk. They're putting Helen's life at risk. Yeah. Uh, and this is the bit I was talking about earlier that was in the novelization, was clearly filmed, mm. and then they trimmed it out for whatever reason, possibly just too grim, weird, horrible, and exotic. Juno, uh, Tia Career, after realizing that uh, Harry has this double life and knowing about this, she's now got his wife and she had no idea, and so she kind of tortures him like a cat playing with a bird prior to killing it. And she's sadistic in that 
fashion. And she kind of tries to imply to Helen that uh, uh, she and Harry have had sex. So that kind of... Or at least that there has been something very romantic between the two of them. So she's sort of poking at her jealousy. And this is how she becomes the sort of... Like, the thing that Helen fears about Harry's double life is that he is unfaithful to her repeatedly. Which, if you've seen any James Bond films, you'd be like, well, that's obviously going to happen all the time. Mm. In the book and original shooting script and original shoot, Juno decides to go one further in tormenting Helen by taking a grenade, pulling the pin and jamming it between Helen's knees to hold the little flat thing down just to say, look, torture's going to happen now. Hold on to this for me, would you? And so Helen is extra tense and holding on to this thing. I was sure when I was younger and watching this on VHS, not in widescreen, that I could actually see like the very top edge of the grenade and the slightly wider shots where you can just about see Jamie's legs, but I felt weirdly sleazy trying to look for it. It was it was more out of curiosity for this. When Harry gets loose, he takes one of Helen's earrings, puts it in the grenade as a makeshift pin, and then they take the grenade with them. This happens in the film. You just don't see it. They're holding the grenade. Helen's missing an earring, and the motif... On the poster, in the true lies bit, bridging between the true and the lies, is a grenade with a wedding ring, rather than an earring, as the pin, visualising the clash of married domesticity and violent spy action movie. And it's there, and it's the one that Harry ends up using to throw to get the big fireworks show happening and start sh- killing all of the uh, uh, terrorists that they are imprisoned by. It's a... At this point, again, it's very much a Durka Durka Jihad, Team America, World Police. Everything about this third act is belittling and diminishing. If you are of even vaguely Middle Eastern extraction, uh, you are entirely within your rights to consider it to be mortally offensive. And everybody that Harry fights is, again, lower than one dimensional. They are 0.2 dimensional. And they're just lackeys to be killed. And it it was, uh, I suppose, like maybe the tail end of an era where we wouldn't question it. Mm, Yeah. I I think you're right about it being that that sort of midpoint between coming off the back of hubris around the first Gulf War Mm. and the bitterness of the second. Yeah. Then there's a bridge sequence uh, shot in the Florida Keys, uh, which these are real man-made causeways stemming and joining these little uh, series of islands uh, at the uh, south end of Miami. And just Google images the word causeway, because you get some moments of, not the man-made ones, stunning natural beauty. Just this these little strips of, of land that sort of go across lakes and curve around. It's Though a bit in uh, Spirited Away when uh, anyone hands up who thought I was going to be mentioning Spirited Away during the True Lies show. (laughs) Seriously, you're lying. You're lying. You, right there with your hand up. Put it down. Anyway, (laughs) uh, the bit where Chihiro's on the train going across the lake. Effectively, they're on a a just-submerged causeway of the train tracks. It's one of the most enchanting pieces of uh, geography you can imagine. But 
these bridges and the Florida Keys are notable for basically just being long stretches with no people around, which makes for a really great kind of like straight scale extric style chase where you can't turn left, you can't turn right, you can't go anywhere other than drive a little bit faster or a little bit slower. And when you blow them up, you can do this with models and the audience can't tell the fucking difference. Yeah. Um, it's nightmarish, frankly, the idea yeah. of being stuck on a thin strip of, of road that I can't get off is terrifying yeah. to me. I am not keen on motorways. Understandable. It's, it's, it's a whole, like, protracted sequence which involves this Three Stooges version of uh, three of the uh, terrorists and we are we are obliged to laugh uh, at them as they sort of teeter on the edge and they're all sort of shouting at each other in foreign and then a pelican spells their certain doom by unbalancing their teetering truck and they crash to their deaths. Yeah, this is when the mili- like super pro-military side of it comes in and uh, these uh, Air Force Harriers turn up to fuck up insurgents. The ultimate plan is to blow up Miami as a example to the world. We can get you where you think you're strongest and we can do something that is so devastating and so terrible and so upsetting that the entire world will take notice. And it's really uncomfortable, this whole section. The scene where Helen, who's in a limousine with Juno, then ends up getting into a a, a bare knuckle brawl with this girl and they're, they're like, wrestling and like she's shoving her bare feet on uh, Tia Korea's face. But then she grabs a Magnum champagne bottle and smashes her in the face. And like, we are used to bottles going smash and like the impact itself shatters the bottle and that was it and they're out for the count. She hits her with it like a club twice with this devastating thunk. You hit her in the temple, she's a dead woman at this point. And then there's that fantastic hanging off a helicopter, grabbing uh, uh, Helen's arm and sort of airlifting her to safety as the limousine plummets into the uh, ocean. And it's a, it's, a, it's a beautifully staged section, which again, because of the weird level of hyper-violence that's also cartoonish, it's almost like itchy and scratchy. <laughs> it doesn't quite play out like the kind of uh, action sequence that you would normally see in a film now. Either now it would be more violent or less violent, if that makes sense. Yeah. It would, it would completely abandon the, the this could be suitable for families yeah. element or it would um, lean into that. The, the, there aren't many films that happened since then where it's like, we are terrorists, we're going to blow up a bomb in this public area and it's not taken seriously. This scenario is taken semi-seriously in a kind of way that feels like you know, this is the big bad that Harry has to stop and he steals one of the Harriers and this is the big set piece at the end of the movie. He's just sort of flying around it and kind of attacking this building full of terrorists who are like, what are he's got a Harrier? And then he's like, and the sound work at this point, because this was the first time we've seen it on in HD ever. And the first time I've seen it like with really, with a really great sound mix since I was 13 in 1994. I'm going to go ahead and guess that my soundbar is probably a little bit better than the Plaza Cinema in Oxted with its beach towel sized screen. <laughs> but it's really loud. I've actually been in the presence of a, a Harrier jump jet taking off. My father used to take me to an annual uh, airfare at Biggin Hill. And they are, it's, it's not just deafening. They swallow the entire world with that wall of sound that just covers 
everything. It is such an astonishing roar when Harriers take off and then kind of hover around. It's one of the few, they were one of the few uh, uh, aircraft uh, capable of, uh, non-propeller driven aircraft capable of vertical takeoff. And in fact, in fact, what they're doing is firing hot air down incredibly hard and fast at high pressure mm-hmm. to hover and then use that to fly with. Yeah. I will back you up on the sound. I grew Being up on an Air, air Force, Force bases. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow I was able to sleep through that shit, but yeah. it is ridiculously loud. It probably contributed to the fact that my ears mm. are a bit fucked these days. But now that Helen's sort of in the clear, we have to endanger Dana, who is a character we haven't really talked about uh, yet. That is uh, Harry and Helen's teenage daughter and uh, Harry's estranged from her. This Watching this made me uh, realise that um, he's even more disparate from his daughter than John Travolta was in Face Off from Jamie, uh, Dominique Swain. That... Um, Sean Archer's like, I haven't taken part in my, daughter, my teenage daughter's life and now, horror upon horrors, she's a goth. Whereas in this, it's like she's just having uh, motorcycle rides with guys and going to school, and Harry realises he's kind of lost touch with her. They don't go into it more than that. They never talk to each other. And I think that's another failing of the film. However, if you know about the production of this and certain events that have happened recently, there's another far bigger failure in this scenario and I'm going to hand over to Sharon to explain what happened. Okay, it, it's it's. I'm going to keep it brief, so okay, it's, it's sure. not going to be uh, massive. It's a length, very so. strong, very deeply unpleasant flavour. Yeah, so in 2018, Eliza Dushku reported that when this film was being made, she was sexually molested by Joel Kramer, who was the stunt coordinator. And she was 12 at the time, I think. Mm-hmm. She told her parents. He uh, invited her up to his hotel room and then came out of the shower in just a towel and basically tried oh, to come on to her. the Weinstein move. Charming. Yeah. So she told her parents. Like this wasn't like a, a misinterpreted hug. Mm-hmm. This was an attempt to rape a child. Um, so yeah, she, she told parents and a couple of adult friends and her older brother and none of them really seemed to know who to tell or how to talk about it. Mm. And somebody, I believe it was one of the the friends, confronted Joel Kramer about it. An adult confronted the perp. Yeah, uh, went to him directly. Shortly after that was her stunt scenes and she, in the in the process of the, the stunts being filmed, I'm assuming it was the Harrier scenes because mm. uh, Dushku wasn't really involved in, in many of the other Yeah, big she stunts. had to drop onto the Harrier. Uh, but she sustained some injuries. Broke she, several ribs. Yeah, cracked some ribs and was in an awful lot of pain and her onset guardian had to take her to the emergency room. Yeah. Uh, Eliza Dushku believed that Kramer had neglected her in the process of that stunt being filmed as punishment for daring to tell somebody about what he'd done. Now, Jamie Lee Curtis said at the time that although she didn't know about it when it happened, Eliza Dushku had told her about it a few years before then and that she completely believed her and the thing that upset her about it the most was that it it kind of illustrated this tone in Hollywood of nobody will nobody will stop the people who are doing this and when they're responsible for your safety it makes everybody very hesitant to step on their toes and this is how they get to get away with this kind of shit they're the ones holding the purse strings they're the ones holding the puppet strings mm. they 
control what happens Absolutely. to people. Cameron Specifically also... women who have no say in things. Absolutely. This and is children... why whenever I hear about women producers, I'm like, yes, more. Yeah, and children even less so. So the fact that recently they've started to bring in specific roles on set that are there to look out for the interests of people who would otherwise be pushed to the bottom of the heap. That's fantastic. I, I really appreciate that that is happening. Uh, but Cameron has also said that he didn't know anything about it at the time, and if he had, it, he, he would have been merciless in terms of dealing with it. Oh, I fully believe if Cameron, if Schwarzenegger had found out about it, they'd have fucking killed the guy. But uh, all they've done in the, all they've been able to do in the past, this guy's now like approaching 60, he was 36 at the time, is back her up. Mm, absolutely. And there have been other allegations from other young women who he worked with in, in, stunt, in mm. a stunt capacity and his uh, representation dropped him and as far as I'm aware he hasn't worked since. Good. So, I mean, that's basically the end of True Lies here. Harry tears apart the uh, uh, terrorist with a Harrier jump jet. Then uh, Aziz jumps on. It's a well-coordinated, amusing sequence. Again, with the Hot Shots reference, there's a bit where Harry flies backwards to get uh, Aziz off his back. And the terrorist flies through the air and lands crotch first on the tail fin. That happened in Hot Shots as well. But in this, it's kind of part of the action. It's one of those nut shots, so like, a, oh, and he ends up with the whole, you know, being hung over a stinger missile, which Harry then smirks, activates the missile with the kiss-off line, you're fired. I think Schwarzenegger was very specifically the, with a dry cool wit like that, I could be an action hero, action hero of the 80s. Like, everyone else who was doing that was imitating Schwarzenegger. It was definitely done before that, mm. but he made it mainstream. Yeah, but I mean, Helen even references at one point, oh my God, I married, I married Rambo. Rambo. Yeah. He's not Rambo. He's Rambo, not Rambo didn't come out with that kind of shit. Yeah. Uh, also, which Rambo? Good point. If you married the first one, he's traumatised. If you married the fifth one, he's a monster. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> the second one was James Cameron's script. Ah. It's that slightly dodgy, he goes in to finish off Vietnam on his own. Mm. You can listen to our Rambo show to uh, catch all of that. The war, everything that happened here may be wrong, but damn it, don't hate your country for it. Hey, I die for it. And what is it you want? I want. What they want, and every other guy who came over here has spilt his guts and gave everything he had once for our country to love us as much as we love it. That's what I want. And, uh, yeah, it, it ends uh, with Helen as a, uh, a, a spy along with Harry, and uh, it turns out she's really good at... Well, basically, she's really good at deception. She's also really good at the tango, mm -hmm. and they, uh, you know, they, they seem very happy. There's There was talk of a sequel for a long while. 
Uh, it was going to be what uh, Cameron did after Titanic, then 9-11 happened, and Jamie Lee Curtis has said whenever anyone asked, that's not funny anymore. Mm -hmm. And understandably so. Uh, again, I feel like this is the key reason why Cameron's been not the least bit interested in getting this re-released. Yeah. Because, think about it, you re-release it, it makes money, but you get all kind of BuzzFeed articles written about you, you yeah. get people asking you, do you think this is responsible to release this now? So honestly, I feel like he's worked out, oh wait, if I wait, they'll eventually release it in 4K anyway, but I'll be dead. So they won't be able <laughs> they won't be able to ask me awkward questions. Now that's cunning. That's the Cameron plan. <laughs> Just uh, tapping my nose here, now you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, considering what actually happened on the uh, set of this film, that this it's it's a troubled shoot. It's troubling in its content. Uh, and it is a film that feels spectacularly dated now to watch. It's still enjoyable, but it's enjoyable in a way that uh, that you can that, that the sheen's been taken off and, and frankly had been for a long time. And you could never really enjoy it in that same way after reality came slamming down into you. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and a special shout out to our $15 sponsors each week. Thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Sabard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salgado, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downey, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Lutch, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. There's a scene in Bad Boys 2, actually, where uh, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence tear up a KKK meeting. And I do wonder if that itself would feel more uncomfortable now, in that it's the whole thing's played for laughs. I would say not, maybe not because of the direction that the violence is going. And because it's Michael Bay behind the camera. Well, yeah, there is that. Mm. Members of the KKK getting very violent with mm. the police department... Probably not. We've held off on uh, covering Django Unchained, which um, oftentimes is my favourite Tarantino, for years, because it keeps changing depending on the year, as in, this is fantastic, this is cathartic, this is racist, this is naive, this is exploitative, this is something that is extremely satisfying to watch. So what, when we finally cover it in, what, 2027, we'll feel differently about it the year after. So... Sometimes things age and then continue to age, but fluctuate. 
It depends on the world. Mm. It's 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 strange, and uh, it's a it's a side effect of of putting things in your movie that you ask people not to think about. Because if you're yeah. asking people to think, then that at least you can put in a bubble and say this was the question being asked at the time. And the more time passes, and the more things that happen, and the more things that have already happened come to light, the more context and nuance gets added to a film that the creators never intended to be there in the first place. I will say it's actually still one of Schwarzenegger's best films. It's not one of Cameron's best films, but it's one of Schwarzenegger's best. Him, along with T2, T1, Total Recall Predator, Last Action Hero, way better than people at the time estimated it as. Commando's great fun. And then there's a whole bunch of kind of slightly crappy movies which he made before then uh, that are still, you know, great fun to watch, but like Running Man or... Uh, <laughs> raw deal which has never appealed to me but again Schwarzenegger's at the top of his game here and it would be uh, only a couple more years after this he'd do Eraser uh, and then Batman and Robin and it feels like Batman and Robin was the, the, the bell that sounded the end of his superstardom and then he went I know politics well it, the two coincided <laughs> Though I also do absolutely rate his uh, his return in uh, Terminator Dark Fate. Yes. Not Genesis, mm. but Dark but Fate. But Dark Fate, yeah, absolutely. So we will be back next week with Titanic. Until then, I've been Boris. And I've been Doris. And school's out. Thank you.